Tertia Morganum by P. D. Espensky, read by Alice Flanagan, Chapter 18 The Meaning of Life This is the eternal theme of human meditation. All philosophical systems, all religious teachings strive to find and give men the answer to this question. Some say that the meaning of life is in service, in the surrender of self, in self-sacrifice, in the sacrifice of everything, even life itself. Others declare that the meaning of life is in the delight of it, relieved against the expectation of the final horror of death. Some say that the meaning of life is perfection, and the creation of a better future beyond the grave, or in future lives for ourselves. Others say that the meaning of life is in the approach to non-existence, still others that the meaning of life is in the perfection of the race, in the organisation of life on earth while there are those who deny the possibility of even attempting to know its meaning. The fault of all these explanations consists in the fact that they all attempt to discover the meaning of life outside of itself, either in the future of humanity, or in some problematic existence beyond the grave, or again in the evolution of the ego throughout many successive incarnations, always in something outside of the present life of man. But if instead of thus speculating about it, men would simply look within themselves, they would see that in reality the meaning of life is not after all so obscure. It consists in knowledge. All life, through all its facts, events and incidents, excitements and attractions, inevitably leads us to the knowledge of something. All life experience is knowledge. The most powerful emotion in man is his yearning toward the unknown. Even in love, the most powerful of all attractions, to which everything is sacrificed, is this yearning toward the unknown toward the new, curiosity. The Persian poet-philosopher Al-Ghazali says, the highest function of man's soul is the perception of truth. And this is asterisked. Al-Ghazali, the alchemy of happiness. Lispensky continues. In the very beginning of this book, consciousness and the world were recognised as existing, I and not I. The world is everything that exists. Consciousness may be defined as the realisation of existence. The I realises its existence and the existence of the world, a part of which it is. Its relation to itself and to the world is called knowledge. The expansion and deepening of its relation to itself and to the world is the expansion of knowledge. All of the soul properties of man, all the elements of his consciousness, sensations, perceptions, conceptions, ideas, judgments, reasonings, feelings, emotion, even creation, all these are the instruments of knowledge which the I possesses. Feelings, from the simple emotions to the most complex, such as the aesthetic, religious and moral emotion, and creation, from the creation of a savage making a stone hatchet for himself, up to the creation of a Beethoven. These indeed are instruments of knowledge. Only to our narrow human view do they appear to serve other purposes the preservation of life, the construction of something, or merely pleasure. In reality, all this conduces to knowledge. Evolutionists, followers of Darwin, say that the struggle for existence and the selection of the fittest created the mind and feeling of contemporary man. That mind and feeling serve life, preserve the life of separate individuals and of the species. And that beyond this, they have no meaning in themselves. But it is possible to answer this with the same arguments before advanced against the mechanicality of the universe, namely, that if consciousness exists, then nothing exists except consciousness. The struggle for existence and the survival of the fittest 
if they truly play such a role in the creation of life, are also not merely accidents, but products of consciousness, of which we do not know. And they also conduce, like everything else, to knowledge. But we do not realise, do not discern the presence of consciousness in the laws of nature. This happens because we study always not the whole, but the part, and we do not divine the consciousness belonging to the whole. By studying the little finger of a man, we cannot discover his consciousness. It is the same way in our relation to nature. We study always the little finger of nature. When we come to realise this, we shall understand that every life is the manifestation of a part of some self-conscious whole. In order to comprehend the consciousness of the whole, it is necessary to understand the character of the whole. Consciousness is a function of the whole, thus the function of man is consciousness. But without understanding man as a whole, it is impossible to understand his consciousness. To understand what our consciousness is, it is necessary to clear up our relation to life. In Chapter 10, an attempt was made, a very artificial one founded on the analogy with the world of two-dimensional beings, to define life as motion in the sphere higher in dimensionality in comparison with ours. From this standpoint, every separate life is, as it were, the manifestation in our sphere of a part of one of the consciousness of another sphere. These consciousnesses look in upon us, as it were, in these lives which we see. When a man dies, one eye of the universe closes, says Fencher. Every separate human life is a moment of consciousness of some great being which lives in us. Every separate life of a tree is a moment of consciousness of a being, a life of which is composed of the lives of trees. The consciousness of these higher beings do not exist independently of these lower lives. They are two sides of one and the same thing. Every single human consciousness in some section of the world may produce the illusion of many lives. This is difficult to illustrate by an example, but if we take Hinton's spiral passing through a plane and the point running in circles on the plane and conceive of the spiral as consciousness, then the moving point of intersection of the spiral with the plane will be life. This example clearly illustrates the relation between consciousness and life. To us, life and consciousness are different and separate from one another because we are inept at seeing, inept at looking at things. And this in turn depends upon the fact that it is very difficult for us to step outside our frames of divisions. We see the life of a tree, of this tree, and if we are told that the life of a tree is a manifestation of consciousness, then we understand it in such a way that the life of this tree is the manifestation of the consciousness of this tree. But this is of course an absurdity resulting from a three-dimensional thinking the Euclidean mind. The life of this tree is a manifestation of the consciousness of the species or family or perhaps of the consciousness of the entire vegetable kingdom. In exactly the same way, our separate lives are manifestations of some great consciousness. We find the proof of this in the fact that our lives have no other meaning at all aside from the process of acquiring knowledge performed by us. A thoughtful man ceases to feel painfully the absence of meaning in life only when he realises this, and begins to strive consciously for that of which he strove unconsciously before. This process of acquiring knowledge, representing our function in the world, is performed not by the intellect only, but by our entire organism, by all the body, by all the life, by all the life of human society, its organisations, its institutions, 
by all culture and all civilization, and we acquire the knowledge of that which we deserve to know. If we declare in regard to the intellectual side of man that its purpose is knowledge, this will evoke no doubts. All agree that the human intellect, together with everything subjected to its functions, is for the purpose of knowledge. But concerning the emotions, joy, sorrow, rage, fear, love, hatred, pride, compassion, jealousy, concerning the sense of beauty, aesthetic pleasure, and artistic creation, concerning the moral sense, concerning all religious emotions, faith, hope, veneration, etc., etc., concerning all human activity, things are not so clear. We usually do not see that all emotions and all human activity serve knowledge. How do fear or love or work serve knowledge? It seems to us that by emotions we feel, by work, create. Feeling and creation seem to us as something different from knowledge. Concerning work, creative power, creation, we are rather inclined to think that they demand knowledge, and if they serve it, do so only indirectly. In the same way, it is incomprehensible how religious emotions serve knowledge. Usually, the emotional is opposed to the intellectual, heart to mind. Some place cold reason or intellect over against feelings, emotions, aesthetic pleasure. And from these, they separate the moral sense, the religious sense and spirituality. The misunderstanding here lies in the interpretation of the words intellect and emotion. Between intellect and emotion, there is no sharp distinction. Intellect, considered as a whole, is also emotion. But in everyday language and in controversial psychology, reason is contrasted with feeling. Will is considered a separate and independent faculty. Moralists consider moral feeling as entirely distinct from all these. Religionists consider separately spirituality or faith. One often hears such expressions as reason mastered feeling, will mastered desire, the sense of duty mastered passion, spirituality mastered intellectuality. Faith conquered reason. But all these are merely incorrect expressions of controversial psychology, just as incorrect as are the expressions sunrise and sunset. In reality, in the soul of man, nothing exists save emotions. And the soul life of man is either a struggle or an adjustment between different emotions. Spinoza saw this quite clearly when he said that emotion can be mastered only by another more powerful emotion and by nothing else. Reason, will, feeling, duty, faith, spirituality, mastering some other emotion, can conquer only by force of the emotional element contained in them. The aesthetic who kills all desires and passions in himself, kills them by the desire for salvation. A man renouncing all pleasures of the world renounces them because of the delight of sacrifice, of renunciation. A soldier dying at his post through the sense of duty, does so because the emotion of devotion or faithfulness is more powerful in him than all others. A man whose moral sense prompts him to overcome passion in himself does so because the moral sense, i.e. emotion, is more powerful than all his other feelings, other emotions. In substance, all this is perfectly clear and simple, but it has become confused and confusing simply because men, calling different degrees of one and the same thing by diverse names, began to see fundamental differences where there were only differences in degree. Will is the resultant of desires. We call that man strong-willed, in whom the will proceeds on definite lines without turning aside. And we call that man weak-willed, in whom the line of the will takes a zigzag course, turning aside here and there under the influence of every new desire. 
But this does not mean that will and desire are something opposite, quite the reverse. They are one and the same because the will is composed of desires. Reason cannot conquer feeling because feeling can be conquered only by feeling. Reason can only give thoughts and pictures evoking feelings which will conquer the feeling of a given moment. Spirituality is not opposed to intellectuality or emotionality. It is only their higher flight. Intellect has no limits, only the human Euclidean mind is limited. But what is intellect? Intellect is the active aspect of any given consciousness. In the Earth's animal kingdom, in all animals lower than man, we see passive consciousness. But with the appearance of concepts, consciousness becomes active, and its active parts begin to work as intellect. The animal is conscious through his emotions. The intellect is present in the animal only in the embryotic state as an emotion of curiosity. In man, the growth of consciousness consists in the growth of the intellect and the accompanying growth of the higher emotions, aesthetic, religious, moral, which according to the measure of their growth become more and more intellectualized, while simultaneously with this intellect is assimilating emotionality, ceasing to be cold. Thus, spirituality is a fusion of the intellect with the higher emotions. The intellect is spiritualized from the emotions. The emotions are spiritualized from the intellect. The functions of the intellect are not limited, but not often does the human intellect rise to its highest form. It is incorrect to say that the highest form of human knowledge will be not in the intellectual, but of a higher character, because the intuitive mind, from the human standpoint, is the higher intellect, and this higher intellect is entirely unrestricted by logical concepts and by Euclidean models of thought. We are likely to hear a great deal concerning this from the standpoint of mathematics, which as a matter of fact transcended the reasoning of logic long ago. But it achieved this by the aid of the intellect. Intuition grows in the soil of the intellect and of the higher emotions, but it is not created by them. A tree grows in the earth, but it is not created by the earth. A seed is necessary. This seed may be in the soul or absent from it. When it is there, it can be cultivated or it can be choked. When it is not there, it is impossible to replace it with anything else. The soul, if a soul it may be called, lacking that seed, i.e. inept to feel and reflect the world of the wondrous, will never put forth the living sprout of intuition, but will always reflect the phenomenal world in that alone. At the present stage of his development, man comprehends many things by the means of his intellect, but at the same time he comprehends many things by means of his emotions. In no case are emotions merely organs of feeling for feeling's sake. They are all organs of knowledge. In every emotion man knows something that he could not know without its aid, something that he could not know by no other emotion, by no effort of the intellect. If we consider the emotional nature of man as self-contained, as serving life and not serving knowledge, we shall never understand its true content and significance. Emotions serve knowledge. There are things and relations which we know only emotionally and only through a given emotion. To understand the psychology of play, it is necessary to experience the emotions of the player. To understand the psychology of the hunt, it is necessary to experience the emotions of the hunter. The psychology of a man in love is incomprehensible to him who is cold and unfeeling. The state of mind of Archimedes when he jumped out of the bathtub is incomprehensible to the staid citizen, 
who would look on such performance as a sign of insanity. The feelings of the globetrotter, delightfully breathing in the sea air and sweeping with his eyes the wide horizon, is incomprehensible to the sedentary stay-at-home. The feeling of a believer is incomprehensible to an unbeliever, and to a believer the feeling of an unbeliever is quite as strange. Men understand one another so imperfectly because they live always by different emotions, and when they feel similar emotions simultaneously, then and only then do they understand one another. The proverbial philosophy of the people knows this very well. A full man does not understand a hungry one, it says. A drunkard is no comrade for the sober man. One rogue recognises another. In the mutual understanding, or the illusion of mutual understanding, in this immersion of similar emotions, lies one of the principal charms of love. The French novelist Maupassant has written very delightfully about this in his story Solitude. The same illusion explains the secret power of alcohol over the human soul, for alcohol creates the illusion of a communion of souls and induces similar fantasies simultaneously in two or several men. Emotions are the stained-glass windows of the soul, coloured glasses through which the soul looks at the world. Each such glass assists in finding in the contemplated object the same or similar colours, but it also prevents the finding of opposite ones. Therefore, it has been correctly said that a one-sided emotional illumination cannot give a correct perception of an object. Nothing gives one such a clear idea of things as the emotions, yet nothing deludes one so much. Every emotion has a meaning for its existence, although its value from the standpoint of knowledge varies. Certain emotions are important and necessary for the life of knowledge, and certain emotions hinder rather than help one to understand. Theoretically, all emotions are an aid to knowledge. All emotions arose because of the knowing of one or another thing. Let us consider one of the most elementary emotions, say the emotion of fear. Undoubtedly, there are relations which can be known only through fear. The man who has never experienced the sensation of fear will never understand many things in life and in nature. He will never understand many of the controlling motives in the life of man. What else but the fear of hunger and cold forces the majority of men to work? He will never understand many things in the animal world. For example, he will not understand the relation of mammals to reptiles. A snake excites a feeling of repulsion and fear in all mammals. By this repulsion and fear, the mammal knows the nature of the snake and the relation of that nature to its own, and knows it correctly, but strictly personally and only from its own standpoint. But what the snake is in itself, the animal never knows by the emotion of fear. What the snake is in itself, not the philosophical meaning of the thing in itself, nor from the standpoint of the man or animal whom it has bitten or may bite, but simply from the standpoint of zoology, this cannot be known by the intellect only. Emotions unite with different eyes of our consciousness. Emotions apparently the same may be united with the very small eyes of the lowest planes of consciousness and with the very great and lofty eyes of the soul and spirit, and correspondingly the role and meaning of this emotion in life may be very different. The continual shifting of emotions, each of which calls itself I and strives to establish power over man, is the chief obstacle to the establishment of a constant I. And particularly does this interfere when the emotions are manifesting in and passing through the lowest regions of the psyche. These are the so-called personal emotions. This term is not quite accurate because these emotions pertain more to the body and the outer world 
than to the personality in the strict sense of this word. It may be more correct to call by the name of personal emotions the emotions of the soul and spirit, i.e. belonging to the true personality of the man. But ordinarily this is given to the emotions of the lowest regions of the psyche. The matter may also be explained in this way. Emotions on the higher planes know that they are not the personality, although they are nearer to the personality, while on the lower planes they assume the appearance of the personality and impose themselves as such, create a pseudo-personality as it were. The sign of the growth of the emotions, this is the liberation of them from the pseudo-personal element and their sublimation on the higher planes. The liberation from the pseudo-personal elements augments the cognizing power of the emotions, because the more there are of the pseudo-personal elements in emotion, the greater the possibility of delusion. Pseudo-personal emotion is always partial, always unjust, by reason of the one fact that it opposes itself to all the rest. Thus the cognitive power of the emotions is greater in proportion as there is less of self-elements in the given emotion, i.e., consciousness that is emotion is not the I. We have seen before in studying space and its laws that the evolution of knowledge consists in a gradual withdrawing from oneself. Hinton expresses this very well. He says that only by withdrawing from ourselves do we begin to comprehend the world as it is. The entire system of mental exercises with coloured cubes invented by Hinton aims at the training of consciousness to look at things from other than the pseudo-personal standpoint. And Aspensky quotes, When we study a block of cubes, writes Hinton, say a cube consisting of 27 lesser cubes, we first of all learn it by starting from a particular cube and axis, and learning how 26 others come with regard to that cube, dot dot dot. We learn the block with regard to this axis, so that we can mentally conceive the disposal of every cube as it comes regarded from one point of view. Next, we suppose ourselves to be in another cube at the extremity of another axis, and looking from this axis, we learn the aspect of all the cubes, and so on. Thus, we impress on the feelings what the block of cubes is like from every axis. In this way, we get a knowledge of the block of cubes. Now, to get the knowledge of humanity, we must study it from the standpoints of the individuals composing it. The egoist may be compared with the man who knows a cube from one standpoint only. Those who feel superficially with a great many people are like those learners who have a slight acquaintance with a block of cubes from many points of view. Those who have deep attachments are like those who know them well from only one or two points of view. And after all, perhaps the difference between the good and the rest of us lies rather in the former being aware. There is something outside of them which draws them to it, which they see, while we do not. And this is Asterix, C.H. Inden, A New Era of Thought. And Aspensky continues, Just as it is incorrect in relation to oneself to evaluate everything from the standpoint of one emotion, contrasting it with all the rest, so it is correspondingly incorrect in relation to the world and men to evaluate everything from the standpoint of one's own I, contrasting oneself with the rest. Thus the problem of correct emotional knowledge consists in the fact that one shall feel in relation to the world and men from one standpoint other than the personal, shall feel not only for oneself but also for others. And the broader the circle becomes for which a person feels, the deeper becomes the knowledge which his emotions yield. 
But not all emotions are of equal potency in liberating from self-elements. Certain emotions from their very nature are disruptive, separative, alienating, forcing man to feel himself as individualised and separate, such as hatred, fear, jealousy, pride, envy. These are emotions of the materialistic order, forcing a belief in matter. And there are emotions which are unitive, harmonising, making man feel himself to be part of some great whole, such as love, sympathy, friendship, compassion, love of country, love of nature, love of humanity. These emotions lead man out of the material world and show him the truth of the world of the wondrous. Emotions of this character liberate him more easily from self-elements than those of the former class. Nevertheless, there can be a quite impersonal pride, the pride in an heroic deed accomplished by another man. There can even be impersonal envy, where we envy a man who has conquered himself, conquered his personal desire to live, sacrificed himself from that which everyone considers to be right and just, but which we cannot bring ourselves to do, cannot even think of doing, because of weakness, of love of life. There can be impersonal hatred, of injustice, of brute force, anger against stupidity, dullness, aversion to nastiness, to hypocrisy. These feelings undoubtedly elevate and purify the soul of man and help him to see things which he would not otherwise see. Christ driving the money changers out of the temple or expressing his opinion about the Pharisees was not entirely meek and mild, and there are cases wherein meekness and mildness are not virtues at all. Emotions of love, sympathy, pity transform themselves very readily into sentimentality, into weakness. And thus transformed, they contribute, of course, to nescience, i.e. matter. There is a division of emotions into pure and impure. We all know this. We all use these words, but understand little of what they mean. Truly, what does pure and dirty or impure mean with reference to feeling? Common morality divides a priori all emotions into pure and impure according to a certain outward signs, just as Noah divided the animals in his ark. All fleshy desires fall into the category of the impure. But I have already presented the idea of V.V. Rovinoff about the latter, that in asceticism the idea of abomination derives from sexual perversion. In reality, indeed, fleshy desires are just as pure as in everything in nature. Nevertheless, emotions are pure and impure. We know very well that there is truth in this classification. But where is it and what does it mean? Only an analysis of emotions from the standpoint of knowledge can give the key to this. Impure emotion. This is quite the same thing as impure glass, impure water or impure sound, i.e. emotion which is not pure, but containing sediments, deposits or echoes of other emotions. Impure, mixed. Impure emotion gives obscure, not pure knowledge, just as impure glass gives a confused image. Pure emotion gives a clear, pure image of that for the knowledge of which it is intended. This is the only possible decision of the question. The arrival at this conclusion saves us from the common mistake of moralists who divide arbitrarily all motion into moral and immoral. But if we try for a moment to separate emotions from their usual moral frames, then we see that matters are considerably simpler, that there are no in their nature pure emotions, nor impure in their nature, but in each emotion will be pure and impure, according to whether or not there are admixtures of other emotions in it. 
There can be a pure sensuality, the sensuality of the Song of Songs, which initiates into sensation of comic life and gives the power to hear the beating pulse of nature. And there can be an impure sensuality, something useless, nameless, mixed with the sense of sin and shame, i.e. with the consciousness of its uselessness. There can be pure sympathy, and there can be sympathy mixed with calculation to receive something for one's sympathy. There can be pure love of knowledge, a thirst for knowledge for its own sake, and there can be an inclination to knowledge wherein considerations of utility and profit assume the chief importance. In the art of manifestation, pure and impure emotions may differ very little. Two men may be playing chess, acting outwardly very similarly, but in one will burn self-love, desire for victory, and he will be full of different unpleasant feelings towards his rival, fear, envy of a clever move, spite, jealousy, animosity or schemes to win, while the other will simply solve a complex mathematical problem which lies before him, not thinking about his rival at all. The emotion of the first man will be impure, if only because it contains much of the mixed. The emotion of the second will be pure. The meaning of this is of course perfectly clear. In the first case the emotion dwells in the lower psychical plane. In the second case it dwells on the intellectual, i.e. on the higher psychical plane, wherefrom it is easily translated into the emotions of the soul, in the true sense of this word. Examples of a similar division of outwardly similar emotions may be constantly seen in the aesthetic, literary, scientific, public, and even the spiritual and religious activities of men. In all regions of this activity, only complete victory over the pseudo-personal elements leads a man to a correct understanding of the world and of himself. All emotions coloured by the false self-elements are like concave, convex, or otherwise curved glasses, which refract rays incorrectly and distort the image of the world. Therefore, the problem of emotional knowledge consists in the corresponding preparation of the emotions which serve as organs of knowledge, become as the little children, and blessed are the pure in heart. In these evangelical words is expressed the idea of the purification of the emotions. It is impossible to know through impure emotions. Therefore, in the interest of a correct understanding of the world, and of self, man should undertake the purification and the elevation of his emotions. This last ends to an entirely new view of morality, that morality, the aim of which is to establish a system of correct relations towards the emotions, and to assist in their purification and elevation, ceases in our eyes to be some wearisome and self-limiting exercise in virtue. Morality, this is a form of aesthetics. That which is not moral is first of all not beautiful because not concordant, not harmonious. We see all the enormous meaning that morality may have in our life. We see the meaning morality has for knowledge, for the reason that there are emotions by which we know and there are emotions by which we delude ourselves. If morality can actually help us to analyse these, then its value is indisputable from the standpoint of knowledge. Current popular psychology knows very well that malice, hatred, anger, jealousy blind a man, darken his reason. It knows that fear drives one insane, etc., etc. But we also know that every emotion may serve either to knowledge or to nescience. Let us consider such an emotion, valuable and capable of high development, as the pleasure of activity. This emotion is a powerful motive force in culture and of service in the perfection of life and in the evolution of all higher faculties of man. But it is also the cause of an infinite number of his delusions and faux pas, 
for which he afterwards pays bitterly. In the passion of activity, man is easily inclined to forget the aim that started him to act, to accept the activity itself for the aim, and even to sacrifice the aim in order to preserve the activity. This is seen with a special clearness in the activity of various spiritual movements. Man, starting out in one direction, turns in the opposite one without himself noticing it, and often descends into the abyss thinking that he is scaling the heights. There is nothing more contradictory, more paradoxical, than the man who is enticed away by activity. We have become so accustomed to man that the strange perversions to which he is sometimes subject fail to startle us as curiosities. Violence in the name of freedom, violence in the name of love, the gospel of Christianity with sword in hand, the stakes and the inquisition for the glory of God of mercy, the oppression of thought and speech on the part of the ministers of religion. All these are incarnated absurdities of which humanity is capable by reason of its own strange duality. And this is asterisked by Spensky. Concerning this duality, see later in regard to the two races of species of men. Chapter 23 and the table of forms of consciousness, which will be up on the website. And Aspensky continues, A correct understanding of morality can preserve us in some degree from such perversions of thought. In our life in general, there is not much of morality. European culture has gone along the path of intellectual development. The intellect invented and organised without considering the moral meaning of its own activity. Out of this arose the situation that the crown of European culture is the dreadnought. Many people realise this and on account of it assume a negative attitude toward culture. But this is unjust. European culture created much besides dreadnoughts that is new and valuable, facilitating life. The elaboration of the principles of freedom and right, the abolition of slavery, that these are indeed normal, the victory of man in many regions where nature presented to him a hostile front, the methods for the distribution of thought, the press, the miracles of contemporary medicine and surgery, all these are indisputably real conquests, and it is impossible not to take them into consideration. But there is no morality in them. The man of European culture invents with equal readiness a machine gun and a new surgical apparatus. European culture began from the life of the savage, taking this life as an example, as it were, and starting to develop all its sides to the utmost without thinking of their moral aspects. The savage crushed the head of his enemy with a simple club. We invented for this purpose complicated devices, making possible the crushing of hundreds of thousands of heads at once. Therefore, such a thing as this happened, aerial navigation, toward which men had looked forward for millenniums, finally achieved, is used, first of all, for the purposes of war. Morality. This is the coordination and the necessity for coordination of all sides of life, with the higher emotions and the higher comprehensions of the intellect. From this point of view, the statement previously made that morality is a form of aesthetics becomes clear. Aesthetics, the sense of beauty, is a sensation of the relation of parts to a whole and the perception of the necessity of a certain harmonious relation. And morality is the same. Those actions, thoughts and feelings are not moral, which are not coordinated, which are not harmonious with the higher understanding and the higher sensations accessible to man. The introduction of morality into our life would make it less paradoxical, less contradictory, more logical and most important, more civilised. Because our vaunted civilization is much compromised by dreadnoughts, i.e. war and everything that goes with it, as well as many things of peaceful life, 
such as the death penalty, prisons, etc. Morality, or moral aesthetics in such a sense as we have shown here, is necessary to us. Without it, we too easily forget that the word has, after all, a certain relation to the act. We are interested in many things, we enter into many things, but for some strange reason we fail to note the incongruity between our spiritual life and our life on earth. Thus we create two lives. In one we are preternaturally strict with ourselves, analyse with great care every idea before we discuss it. In the other we permit with extreme ease any compromises and easily keep from seeing that which we do not care to see. Moreover, we reconcile ourselves to this division. We do not find it necessary seriously to introduce into our lives our higher ideals and almost accept as a principle the division of the real from the spiritual. All the indecencies of our life have arisen as a result of this. All of those infinite falsifications of our life, falsifications of the press, art, drama, science, politics, falsifications in which we suffocate as in a fetid swamp, but which we ourselves create because we and none other are servants and ministers of those falsifications. We have no sense of the necessity to introduce our ideas into life, to introduce them into our daily activity, and we even admit the possibility that this activity may go counter to our spiritual quests. In accordance with one of those established standards, the harm of which we recognise, but for which no one holds himself responsible because he did not create them himself. We have no sense of personal responsibility, no boldness, and we are even without the consciousness of their necessity. All this would be very sad and hopeless if the concept we were not so dubious. In reality, the correctness of the very expression we is subject to grave doubt. The enormous majority of the population of this globe is engaged in the effort in destroying, disfiguring and falsifying the ideas of the minority. The majority is without ideas. It is incapable of understanding the ideas of the minority, and left to itself, it must inevitably disfigure and destroy. Imagine a menagerie full of monkeys. In this menagerie, a man is working. The monkeys observe his movements and try to imitate him, but they can imitate only his visible movements. The meaning and aim of these movements are closed to them. Therefore, their actions will have quite another result. And should the monkeys escape from their cages and get hold of the man's tools, then perhaps they will destroy all his work and inflict great damage on themselves as well. But they will never be able to create anything. Therefore, a man would make a great mistake if he referred to their work and spoke to them as we. Creation and destruction, or more correctly, the ability to create or the ability only to destroy, these are the principal signs of the two types or races of men. Morality is necessary to us. Only by regarding everything from the standpoint of morality is it possible to differentiate unmistakably the work of man from the activity of apes. But at the same time, delusions are nowhere more easily created than in the region of morality. Allured by his own particular morality and moral gospel, a man forgets his aim of moral perfection, forgets that this aim consists in knowledge. He begins to see an aim in morality itself. Then occurs the a priori division of the emotions into good and bad, moral and immoral. The correct understanding of the aim and meaning of the emotions is lost along with this. Man is charmed with his niceness. He desires that everyone else should be just as nice as he, or as that remote ideal created by himself. 
then appears delight in morality for morality's sake, a sort of moral sport, the exercise of morality for morality's sake. A man under these circumstances begins to be afraid of everything. Everywhere, in all manifestations of life, something immoral begins to appear to him, threatening to dethrone him or others from that height to which they have risen or may rise. This develops a preternaturally suspicious attitude toward the morality of others. In an ardour of proselytism, desiring to popularise his moral views, he begins quite definitely to regard everything which is not in accord with his morality as hostile to it. All this becomes black in his eyes. Starting with the idea of utter freedom, by arguments, by compromises, he very easily convinces himself that it is necessary to fight freedom. He already begins to admit a certain censor of thought. The free expression of opinions contrary to his seems to him inadmissible. All this may be done with the best intentions, but the results of it are very well known. There is no tyranny more ferocious than the tyranny of morality. Everything is sacrificed to it. And of course there is nothing so blinding as such tyranny, as such morality. Nevertheless, humanity needs morality, but of a different kind, such as is founded on the real data of superior knowledge. Humanity is passionately seeking for this, and perhaps will find it. Then on the basis of this new morality will occur a great division, and those few who will be able to follow it will begin to rule others, or they will disappear altogether. In any case, because of this new morality and those forces which it will engender, the contradictions of life will disappear and those biped animals which constitute the majority of humanity will have no opportunity to pose as men any longer. The organised forms of intellectual knowledge are science founded upon observation, calculation and experience, and philosophy founded upon the speculative method of reasoning and drawing conclusions. The organised form of emotional knowledge are religion and art. Religious teachings, taking on the character of different cults, are founded entirely upon the emotional nature of man. Magnificent temples and gorgeous vestments of priests and acolytes, the solemn ritual of worship, processions, sacrifices, singing music, all these have as their aim the attuning of man in a certain way, the evoking in him of certain definite feelings. The same purpose is served by religious myths, legends, stories of lives of heroes and saints, prophecies, apocalypses. These all act upon the imagination, upon the feelings. The aim of it is to give God to man, to give him morality, i.e. to give him a certain knowledge of the mysterious side of the world. Religion may deviate from its true aim, may serve earthly interests and purposes, but its foundation is the search for truth, for God. Art serves beauty, i.e. emotional knowledge of its own kind. Art discovers beauty in everything and compels man to feel it and therefore to know. Art is a powerful instrument of knowledge of the numinal world. Mysterious depths, each one more amazing than the last, opens the vision of man when he holds in his hands the magical key. But let him only think that this mystery is not for knowledge, but for pleasure in it, and all the charm disappears at once. Just as soon as art begins to take the delight in that beauty which is already found, instead of the search for new beauty, an arrestment occurs and art becomes a superfluous ethicism, encompassing man's vision like a wall. The aim of art is the search for beauty, just as the aim of religion is the search for God and truth. And exactly as art stops, so religion stops also as soon as it ceases to search for God and truth, thinking that it has found them. 
This idea is expressed in the precept, Seek the kingdom of God and his righteousness. Science, philosophy, religion, art, these are forms of knowledge. The method of science is experiment. The method of philosophy is speculation. The method of religion and art is moral or aesthetic emotional inspiration. But both science and philosophy, religion and art, begin to serve the true knowledge only when intuition commences to manifest in them, and by intuition is meant the sensing and finding of some inner property in things. In general, it is quite possible to say, and perhaps it will be most true to fact, that the aim of even purely intellectual systems of philosophy and science consists not at all in the giving to man of certain data of knowledge, but in the raising of man to such a height of thinking and feeling as to enable him to pass to those new and higher forms of knowledge to which art and religion approach more nearly. End of chapter 18